If you've got your Bible, grab it out. We're going to read from the book of Genesis. Uh, and I, uh, we're, I'm still talking about Abraham because he's, um, he's, uh, Abraham is invading my thoughts at every occasion at the moment. And, uh, and uh, I'm thinking about him and uh, reading about ancient history. And uh, how many you know that, that can get a little bit obsessive after a while? Uh, anyhow, uh, Genesis chapter 17 we are going to read. Uh, we're going to read from verse 1 through to, remind me, Jono. Um, I think it was verse 8. I just wrote, in my notes, I just wrote Genesis, which would be a long sermon uh, at 50 chapters. Uh, anyway, Genesis, Genesis 17 verses 1 uh, to 8. And we're starting a new series today, um, just the next three weeks. And we're just asking this question, what if? What if God comes through? Uh, what if God can turn a cancer story around? You know, what if God could make a breakthrough in our business or your business? What if God could turn your relationship situation around? What if God could set you free from things that hold you back on the inside? What if there's something more for you to reach out towards? What if you did get involved in church more and got connected in community, right? I think we most commonly respond when, when, there's, when there's input from the outside from a positive direction. We mostly respond with the word whatever. Right? You could own your own home, whatever. We need to shift our whatever to a what if. Do you know what I mean? You, you can be healed from cancer. We need to shift our whatever to what if. What if that could happen? What if God did work in that way? You can expand your business. You could start a business. We've got to go from whatever to what if, right? We've got to be people who can embrace the possibilities. We've got to be people who can embrace not just impossibilities, uh, possibilities. We've got to be people who can embrace impossibilities, do you know, it's not enough for the church. It's not enough for the church to be possibility thinkers. To be an entrepreneur, you can be a, you can be a possibility thinker. You've got to think about what might be possible. That's great in business to be a possibility thinker. It's great in parenting to be a possibility thinker. It is possible to get this nappy on this small child, right? To think of the possibilities, right? But actually, for us to engage faith, we've got to be people who are prepared to consider, think about, meditate on, engage our hearts with, put our money behind, put investment and time and energy behind, not just possibilities, but impossibilities. The reality is we're, we're so blessed to have Brendan Fipe and others who from, from previous Uprising Church, now Equipers Church. It's so exciting to have you guys here for a few weeks while we gear up for Parua because it engages our heart. Hey, we're here to move forward, right? It's, it's exciting, right? But the reality is this. We don't want to do something in Parua that's all tied in around possibilities, we don't want to do what's possible in Parua. We actually want to engage our heart and see God do some impossible things in some families. We want to see God do some impossible things in a community and in cities. We want to do God do impossible things in individuals' lives. Amen? You've got to shift your whatever to your what ifs. What if God did it? Do you know, certainty is one of those things, isn't it? One of the things we really crave in life is certainty. We want to be certain about things. Well, you know, um, one of our children, they question every single night. Uh, I don't want to give away who it is, but, so I wouldn't say how long, but for a very long time. Every single night, the question is at bedtime, what are we doing tomorrow? 
And whatever you say can't change. You can't change plans. This is also true for one of the parents in our family. Uh, you, can't, <laughs> you can't change plans, right? And obviously, I'm talking about myself. I'm very structured, very focused, very organized. I like to know what's happening tomorrow, and I don't like change uh, or any unnecessary overexcitements. Uh, and the reality is that sometimes, though, sometimes our desire for certainty drives us to lock in on something small because we can be sure of that. Well, I could aim for the stars, but I can be sure of the moon. Well, God's called us to look at the stars, right? God's not called us to inherit just a tiny thing. God's not called us to a small promise. God's called us to something big. Right, it's always, here's, here's the reality is that sometimes, sometimes we lock in on something small because we want, it to, we want to be sure of it. Right, so in New Zealand, we've uh, I've grown up saying this: C's get degrees. Right? How many of you have heard that one? Right? Anything more than fifty percent is a wasted effort. Was the was uh, what we told each other in fifth form? Uh, <laughs> yeah, because if you get fifty when you pass, there's no point studying for fifty-one percent. That's a completely pointless. Right? Now that that doesn't come. That's not just that's not efficiency. It sounds like efficiency, though. Let me know. Let me assure you, that's not efficiency. That comes from scaling back your own expectations, so you can think. I only want to aim for something that I'm sure I will hit, right? Because you're not prepared to cope with the possibility of it not happening. You're not prepared to cope with disappointment, right? And so you get enough disappointments in your life. So let's say you're 40 years old or older. You have enough disappointments in your life that unless you've actively worked and allowed the Holy Spirit to engage you and push you, you will be living a small life. You will have scaled back. Oh, can I assure you of that? You will have scaled back because you're old enough to have had a few hits, right? That you begin to think, oh, well, maybe we'll do this or maybe we'll do that. And you can, by circumstance, be narrowed in or even painted into a corner in life where you just think, well, this is my space. I'm sort of stuck here. Well, I just think you just walk across the wet paint. It's time to just walk across the wet paint. It's time to just push back against the things that are holding us back in the corner and understand and come back, reconnect with the reality that God's called us to some things that are beyond what we can imagine. I don't know if you're convinced this morning, but hopefully we'll get there by the end, that we'll be convinced that if God's speaking to us, He's speaking to us about something that's bigger than our brain. If it's God who's saying it, it's going to be big. Isn't it? I can't imagine the God who creates the universe, he creates the whole universe, and then he comes up with a plan for your life. So look at his track record. What are the sorts of things that God likes to create and develop and plan? What are they like? They're things like sunsets, glaciers, nebula, galaxies, right? And then we say, God, I just want to get through the day. God's like, what do you even mean? God's not trying to you God's not just trying to get you through the day. God's trying to fire you through eternity. God's positioned you in time and space for a unique and special purpose. Just like Dougal, you have your own unique style in life. God wants to anoint it. Now come on, you are part of God's glorious plan. It doesn't matter how small you think you are or how small people have told you you are or how insignificant you are. It doesn't matter what mistakes you have made. It doesn't matter what the disappointments are. It doesn't 
those things all matter. They all hurt. They're all real. But God's working in and amongst it all. God wants to position you now and to step forward in your life. Everybody in the room, I just want you to stand up. And I want you to take one step forward, then you can sit back down. Very good. Now you can sit back down. <laughs> Health and safety, injuries everywhere. Awesome. Very, very good. Very good. Okay, it says this. When Abraham was 99 years old, when Abraham was 99 years old, God's going to speak to him about a plan. God's got a plan for Abraham's life. And at 99, God speaks to him and says this. I am God Almighty. Serve me faithfully. Live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to make you into a mighty nation. At this, Abraham fell down in the dust. God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of not just one nation, but a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. You'll no longer be Abram. Now you'll be known as Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will give you millions of descendants who will represent many nations. Kings will be among them. I will continue this everlasting covenant between us, generation after generation. It will continue between me and your offspring forever, and I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Yes, I will give all of this land of Canaan to you and your offspring forever and ever, and I will be their God. The reality is this. When God spoke to Abraham at 99 years old and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, God is saying something stupid. I guarantee you, God is saying something offensive. God is saying something that clashes with all logical reason. I, I, I dare you to get a little pack together. We've got one on the front row that we've got for May. It's a little pack there of some baby lotion and some flannels and I'm running out of stuff. Uh, it's got, you know, baby stuff, which I've tried to avoid uh, and have put it locked away in the back of my subconscious. But it's in that little thing there and, uh, and we're going to give it to May and Kahui because they just had a baby, right? That's what you do, right? I dare you to make one of those up, go down to an old folks' home Find somebody and say, I reckon this might come in handy. Find someone about 99. See if you can find someone about 99. And just give it to them and say, congratulations. The reality is this. What you do, by doing that, you make yourself look foolish because the whole world knows 99-year-olds do not have children. And everyone over 40 said, amen, right? right? But 99-year-olds do not have children. So when God brings this promise to Abraham, God's not speaking about possibilities. God's not speaking something to Abraham that Abraham can then look at the plan of God and sort of think, okay, yeah, I think I can figure this out. Now, we know that, well, let's assume that Abraham knew what to do in the normal sense, right? To see this promise fulfilled. Let's just assume that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to talk to your mom, Right? But the reality is this, God speaks to Abraham and speaks against all logic, against all conventional wisdom, and says to Abraham something that's completely impossible. Most of the time as Christians, we can't even hear God say those things. 
Because unless we can sort of imagine how it would work out, right? Unless it's like, okay, yeah, okay, so that we could do that, and then we could do this, and then we could do that, right? So we've been praying for a year now that we would see a measurable impact in the culture of our city. We've said, we've said as a church, come on, we don't want to just be a church in Wellington. We want to be a church that has impact in Wellington, right? Because we're here, there's not just a, a spiritual impact in the city, but we believe for that. But we believe in that that spiritual impact would be measured in the actual cultural dynamics of our city, right? And so we've done all sorts of different stuff, praying, and, and we invested in the kids' ministry, and we invested in the young adults' ministry, and we're investing in the youth ministry, right? But just across the last year and a half, two years, what we've seen happening, particularly in the, on the university campuses around Red Frogs, is just phenomenal, right? For about 10 years as, as a church, we've been connecting on campus, Right? We've had always had someone whose who's, who's dream it is to see something happen, Hayden Saunders and, and others who have done it, right? This is what they carry. Alistair did it for years and years and ringing around the hostels. Hey, we're Quippers Church, Wellington or Wellington Central Church or uh, we're Red Frogs or we're Quippers Young Adults or the Revolution Uni, whatever name we were using at the time, right? Uh, for some reason, they always knew it was us and they said, go away, right? So a few years ago, you remember we did a, a Sunday night service on campus, right, which was awesome, and Alistair worked hard, and Sarah, I think, was part of that. You went to it. Yeah, it was, it was awesome, eh? I preached an amazing sermon with a whiteboard, which I haven't done since. I might need to do it again. There's some interesting spelling on the whiteboard. But uh, after that service, they said to us, we will never hire this building to you ever again, <laughs> We never. We don't want any Christian influence on the campus. Christian, uh, religious. Sorry, religious, not Christian. Religious organizations can't hire university facilities. Now, the, their reasoning is not persecution. Like Christians being really good at going, wow, they hate Jesus. Now, it's more just difficult for them to manage, right? Because there's all these different religious groups, and everyone's got an opinion about everyone else's religious group, and they're just like, let's just leave the religious people to. Over there, and we'll just carry on being a university. And I, if I was running the university, I would probably make the same decision, right? Because I've ha- I spent a lot of time working with religious people, and they're all crazy. Now, so that's what they said, right? But so we keep ringing, we ring the hostels, we ring the University Students Association. Alistair was knocking the door, go to meetings, talk about budgets. Uh, you know, can we do? We can do this, we can do that. But but coming into the university year this year. We've been invited, or Sarah has been invited to run programs in every single uh, university hostel, Victoria University hostel, as many as, as, many as we can. Uh, a weekly event uh, uh, in those hostels. She's been asked to run Take 10 every night of the week through O-Week. That's from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. So if you're keen to get involved, pray. <laughs> That's what I do. I pray. I just as I go to sleep at 9.30. I'm just like, oh, help them, Jesus. And... Um, so take 10 every night of the week. Um, uh, then at the Hunter Lounge on Victoria University campus, which is very close to the building that we were never allowed to hire again, they're running concerts every all through O-Week, and Sarah and the team will be there doing harm minimization stuff, handing out water, looking after people, just like stuff that Luca was talking about before, right? Every night of the week through that, right? Every single event. It's like 1,100, 1,200 people at each of those events, right? And we didn't ring them. They rang us. 
last week, Sarah, or two weeks ago, Sarah gets an email from the manager of the Cube Hostel, which is just on the corner of Webb Street and Taranaki Street, and, uh, and then across the road. So the school field, the next-door neighbors, is another part of that hostel. There's something like 300 students that live between those two buildings, and the person, the manager emailed Sarah and said, we want you running a weekly Christian event on, in our hall of residence. Uh, Bible studies or whatever you want to do. And they said, if you want to take them bowling, do, do some food or whatever, whatever you want to do, we'll pay for it. So we've gone for, uh, so the reality is this, if, if, if someone had said to me two years ago, peop, the, the people who run the hostels are going to email you and ask you to come and you're not going to have enough people to do, it sounds like a prophetic word that people prophesy and then I, I'm like, well, yeah, what, whatever. Right? Whatever. There, there's got to be more opportunity for the gospel than we've got people to, to share the gospel, right? These are the prophetic words that we hear, but now it's happening. Now, the reality is when God speaks, God speaks about impossibilities that are illogical that we can't understand. And we've got to figure out some way of connecting with what if. What if this is God speaking? What if God's at work? What if God's moving? What could happen if we believed? Amen? Everyone say, whatever. Everyone say, what if? Okay, so there's absolutely no reason to believe that a 99-year-old and his 99, 95-year-old wife are going to have a baby. There's no logical, medical, physical reason to believe that. Right? That that's what God said. Here's the other thing God said. God says to Abraham, now you've got to remember, Abraham, it's a very long time ago. It's at least 6,000 years ago, maybe a few more. It's at the very dawn of human civilization, right? As I've said before about Abraham, he, he was from Ur and then, and then was, traveled to Haran and from Haran to Israel. So it's sort of from Iraq through to, towards Turkey and then back down. It's the sort of journey that he took. Right, but this was at a time when they were inventing things like streets. There were cities that had no streets, and then they developed streets, which made it less awkward to visit your neighbors, right? You didn't have to go through people's houses to get to the shops, right? That was a new idea at the time of Abraham, right? Things like bronze and metals, these were all brand new ideas. Tallest buildings were like four stories high, right? The reality is this is a long time ago, and God speaks to Abraham, and what God's speaking to Abraham about is that Abraham's going to have a son, and we know that later, in a few chapters later, he has a son named Isaac, right? So God's speaking to Abraham about the son of promise, and then he extends it and says, it's actually more than just the son. I'm going to make you the father of a nation. So your son is not just going to be another person in the world, but through your son, there's going to be the development of a nation of people, right? Now, Abraham knew what a nation was because he'd come from Babylon, so he could knew what a nation was. He's like, wow, God's going to birth a nation in this genealogy, right, in this line, right? So you could understand that, right? But then God says, but you're going to be the father of many nations, right? Straight away, that doesn't make any sense at all, right? Because I don't know if you've seen a family tree, right? Family trees don't, they only have one starting point and then it goes like that. Where God says, no, you're going to have, you're going to be the father of a nation and then nations and nations and nations. Right? So there's this dimensional power of God that's our work in this genealogy, right? Now, that would be starting to spin Abraham's gears, okay? So father of a son. Now, that's 
impossible and illogical, but that's going to become a nation, right? But not just a nation, it's going to be nations. And then every family on the earth is going to be blessed through you. And these kings are going to come in your family, right? Not just a king, but kings, right? And then through all generations, I'll keep my covenant with you. Now, I can guarantee you that Abraham didn't imagine 2018, in the year 2018, people who are not even physically related to me are going to be speaking about me at Wellington High School Hall. Right? Because Wellington's not a concept that he could have imagined. New Zealand is not a place that he could have imagined. Right? The idea of salvation coming through the genealogy of Abraham to the line of, to, through David to Christ Jesus, right? That then we talk about Jesus' blood this morning and how it brings us into this family of God where we can say we're children of Abraham, children of faith. Now, there's no way that if God had said to him, okay, in 2018, there's going to be, it's hard to understand, but there's going to be a bunch of people from multiple different ethnic backgrounds, a concept Abraham wouldn't have been comfortable with, right? People of speaking all different sorts of languages, they're going to play a track with some dance beats and sing songs, right? And they're going to sit in rows on plastic chairs. What's plastic? Wow. Now, you've got to understand what God's speaking to Abraham about. It's not just impossible. It's also something that he's got no context in which to put the picture. He's got no language for it. He's got no understanding of it. All he can say is, wow, what if God? What if God makes me the father of many, many nations? What if God can bless all the families on the earth, right? Now, when God said to Abraham, God bless all the families on the earth, Abraham was thinking, wow, you know, it's Babylon and the Middle East. The whole world. Right, but how many of you know that God's plan is always bigger than what he can fit into our head? What God can fit into English words that we then can conceive of, God wants to do something even bigger than that. All the families on the earth, every nation on the world being blessed. I don't know what you think about when you think, you know, as a church, we want to see a measurable impact in the culture of our city. I just wonder, how would you like that to be measured? What's, what's the thing in you? If the kingdom of God, as we're instructed to pray, if God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, what do you think that would look like? Or what do you think it should look like? Or what do you think it could look like? What do you imagine it might be possibly able to? What if God's kingdom came on earth as it is in heaven? What would it look like? What could it look like? Because most of the time we can pray a prayer like that without thinking what are we even asking for? What are we asking for when we say, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? One of the questions I've been asking people sometimes, and um, I just started asking it out of interest, uh, and it's developed into a theme of questions that I ask people. So if, if I ask you this sometime, uh, you'll be able to have a prepared statement because you heard it now, right? So the question I ask people is this, is, is what would you, I think about, I talk about church first, and I say, what would you, if you could change something about our church, but not just our church, but that church, the way church works, our little church calls nothing, but also the big church of how, how people relate with God and how the, the, the church relates to the world. If there was one thing you could change and you could change it overnight, you could just change it. 
what's that one thing you would change? So have a think. Don't talk to your neighbor. What's the one thing you would change? I asked one person today straight away, like, like they'd almost like they'd prepared a special answer for this question. They just said, I think that I- anyone who comes into church and sits in a chair attending a service anywhere, that nobody who's attending a church would ever feel lonely. I was like, how do you mean that wasn't my answer? I was just like, wow, that's amazing. So here's someone who, when they think about church, they have this very specific idea of what, what, what church needs to do for people, that people would feel connected, right? That they would go, I asked another person the question, and they just said, oh, that every time we gathered as a church and then through the lives of Christians, that the miraculous power of God would be manifest in healing and signs and wonders and miracles and people being set free from the things that hold them back, right? That that would be happening every time we gather and then flowing out through the people of the church. And I was like, wow, that's another answer that I wouldn't have thought of as my number one thing, right? And then how another person answered it, and this probably would be more like my answer, is that everybody who's part of the church would live a life with purpose, knowing that God's got a plan for them and they can fit into it, and there's meaning in their everyday, whatever their everyday looks like, because God's working in their world, right? But can you imagine what if... We all got an idea of what God wants to do through us. What if we all got an idea of what the church could look like? What if we took that thing in our heart where we said, wouldn't it be better if church was like X, Y, Z, and we begin to believe for it and we begin to work for it and we begin to say, hey, come on, God, what would it look like if, right? But think about the church. What what do you think it would look like if God invades the city? Come on, what's the impossible thing that you can't even understand that God's actually saying? What's the impossible thing that you can't understand that God's actually speaking to you about and saying, come on, this is what kingdom looks like in your world. This is what kingdom looks like in your industry. This is what kingdom looks like in your family. This is what 1145 looks like. The reality 1115 looks like. The reality is we've got to be prepared to engage the what if without fear of disappointment, without the pain of the past preventing us from even hearing God. And we've got to say, come on, God, what if? You know, our previous series was more. Can can we tell that we're really just carrying on the previous series here? We've got to think about what if, rather than just what is in our face right now. Sometimes all we can think of is mortgage and busy and work and and tension and pressure and that's all what is but we've got to be able to think beyond that and think what is i wasn't quite ready but i'm gonna you play and it'll be like it'll be like real magical like, you play some smooth sounds and i'll talk like this so there's two people in the history i wanted to talk about at great length but i'll do it briefly now the uh Um, one of them, if you get the chance, you should uh, dig out from the video store, get a VHS of, um, or a DVD of Amazing Grace. It's not that old a movie, but the, the movie Amazing Grace, quite a recent, maybe five years ago production. And it tells the story of William Wilberforce. And it's, an, it's a great movie, but the movie, like every movie, it's really just scratching the surface of a really massive, massive story. William, and William Wilberforce was the most public figure uh, involved in the abolition of slavery in the British, in, in Britain particularly, but then spreading throughout the British Empire. 
Uh, and he was, a, he was an MP, a member of parliament in his early 20s. He became a Christian, having previously just been sort of a, a lad about town. He became a Christian again, still in his early, mid-20s. Um, and some of his friends was Isaac Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was one of his mentors. William Pitt was one of his good friends from university. He was the prime minister. Uh, and he, he was just an independent MP for his whole career. He was like, he never wanted to be in any one party. He would just support things. It was sort of, democracy worked differently then. It worked uh, differently. And, uh, and the, he became aware, like people started writing about and uh, people were visiting the slave plantations in, in um, the West Indies and uh, in the, in the, in the Americas uh, where there were, there were really were British slaves because how it worked was that, that ships would leave Britain with British-made goods and they would sell them into sort of West Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. And then from there, rather than the currency that they would sell for would be slaves. So they'd sell the goods and then they would take slaves and they would take the slaves not back to Britain but across to the Americas, to to um, the Caribbean, and they'd, they'd work on sugar plantations, coffee plantations, other stuff like that. Uh, and then from there, they'd take the goods from those plantations back to Britain to sell, right? So when 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 William Wilberforce was coming up against slavery, he wasn't coming up against just the injustice at a human, visible sort of level. He was coming against an economic system that was well-established for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, Right? Right? So he's coming up against an economic system and he was pointing out that it was unjust, right? He worked for 20 years and eventually after 20 years of significant work that cost him a lot of effort, his health deteriorated. He wasn't in good health to begin with. He had, there was, it wasn't just him, but there was a massive movement that began in Britain and then they saw passing through Parliament laws that began the unraveling of that. That economic triangle from Britain to West Africa to the West Indies right, to Britain, that was 80% of Britain's foreign currency earnings. And, and they abolished it. They undid it because they could see when the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, you don't do this to people, right? That, the modern day equivalent in New Zealand would be something like the abolition of dairy products. Right? It's impossible, and I've got nowhere to put that in my mind. I can't, literally, I can't imagine a world without ice cream. I, I struggle to imagine a day without ice cream, right? What do you do with a flat white? Well, we're drinking soy flat whites like complete weirdos. The reality is this. When William Wilberforce and the team that were with him, they were coming up against something that was so ingrained in people's psyches, and they broke it. Isn't that phenomenal? A social justice issue that was in, rooted into the, the thinking of people, they turned it upside down. Imagine, imagine a meat-free, dairy-free New Zealand. Imagine a New Zealand where we don't eat steak. We don't do sausages on the barbecue. Now, that's impossible for us to imagine, but come on, what is the New Zealand that you can't imagine that God's calling you to work for? What does it look like? What does it sound like? Come on, we've got to engage in what if. Another real awesome dude that I love reading about, he's a bit, like all people from history, they're, they're, um, they're as bad as they are good and they're, they're as crazy as they are brilliant. Uh, and uh, B- uh, Bill, Bill Wilson, a great name because his name's obviously William Wilson, 
loves those rhyming names from the olden days. <laughs> but Bill Wilson was an alcoholic. He 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 fought in World War One, so he was sort of born in the late 1800s. Uh, he grew up. Uh, he was brought up by his grandparents. His parent, mother and father sort of disappeared randomly. What, his mother, I think, may even run off and joined a circus, something like that sort of a scenario. Uh, or at least that might have been just the story he was told. But he brought up by an alcoholic grandfather who well, didn't seem like a bad person from what I read on Wikipedia. Uh, but he brought up by his grandparents and, and he, he developed alcoholism in, when he was a business person in the university. Uh, and he had sort of a crippling sort of problem with alcohol such that he would drink himself into hospital. Um, and he had to be in hospital for treatment. They bring him back to health. And um, obviously this had an impact on his marriage, on his business. He didn't finish university because he was just too drunk um, to do it. He was a brilliant sort of a guy, but massively afflicted by uh, alcoholism, right? And um, he'd seen all sorts of various doctors, but he happened to he happened to have a doctor at one point who was treating him in the hospital and then began working with him sort of over a wee while. And this doctor had a radical new idea. Because um, at the time, uh, in, you know, post-World War One, if you were what just called, they were just called a drunk. If you were a drunk, uh, if you're an alcoholic, uh, that's because you were morally defective. Right? So there was a moral defect in who you were as a human being. You were one of the evil ones. Right, and so they didn't worry too much about you because the idea was that you would drink yourself dead and then they'd bury you. Right, usually in a pauper's grave. And so there was, there wasn't, there was very little treatment or anything like that. It was, it was just like, well, you're a moral defect, so you're sort of outcast. But this doctor had an idea, and he thought he had this thought that what if alcoholism was more related to your actual health? Like there was a, this was a medical sort of a thing rather than a moral issue that you've got this issue that's because you're evil. So we just do this and stay away from you, right? There's still quite a popular sort of train of thought there around moral issues. And that's just because you're evil. Shame on you. I just might perhaps suggest to you that in the season of grace that we live in, the issues that you're facing with aren't because you're evil. You know, I just point this out. When God created us, we're all good, right? You might do the odd evil thing. But you are something God created good, right? And God can, can work in your world. And so the doctor said to him, what if we began treating you? And, and, and what if you transformed? What, what if you could get better than this? What if you did? And he, the doctor said, if you don't, you're just going to die. But what if you could, what if we could begin treatment or you could think differently? What if you could reach out and believe, right? And the doctor had no idea what the treatment would be like. But in the middle of the night, Bill Wilson cries out to God, prays to God and says, God, if you're real, if there's a God, I need your help. I need you to transform it. I need you to save me from this problem, right? There's a bright light in his room and he had this really dramatic spiritual experience in the hospital where he says God, God connected with him, God entered his life and transformed him. He never drank alcohol again from that point. Pretty phenomenal transformation in a moment. As he reached out to God, he finally realized he couldn't do it, reach out to God, right? Uh, months or years later, I think months later, he was really tempted again to drink. He, he'd had a business deal go badly. He was traveling for business. He was in a different town. He had a business deal go badly. And he had this thought that he was just going to go get drunk. You know, it wasn't worth trying anymore. It wasn't worth keeping drunk, trying to be sober anymore. Uh, he just wanted to, you know, get out of the pain moment, right? Right? 
And he thought to himself, if I don't start helping other alcoholics, I'm going to always be tempted like this, right? So he, he asked around the town and even got hold of a church phone directory that they used to have in those days and began phoning around people in the church directory looking for another alcoholic. Hi, my name's Bill Wilson. Wilson. Are you an alcoholic? And he found, he, someone says, oh, I'm not an alcoholic, but so-and-so is, Dr. So-and-so, right? And so we had to meet this other guy who's an alcoholic, and they sh- shared his story and talked about this divine encounter he had, and he said, uh, would you like that as well? And they started meeting on a regular basis, talking to each other, right? And what began as one guy trying to find a solution to his own challenges grew into what is now known as Alcoholics Anonymous. That's helped literally a billion people around the world in all sorts of different addictive patterns and behaviors from violence to all sorts of different sorts of things. When people are trapped in a space, they, this, this idea that of this one guy who said, well, what if I could get free? And then he suddenly realized, well, what if my key to my freedom is helping some other people, right? And it's developed into this thing that's actually blessed millions of people around the world. It hasn't helped every, it doesn't, it hasn't transformed everybody, but it has been a key part of many millions of people's journey to recovery. I just wonder, what if Bill Wilson couldn't engage with what if? What if all he could say was whatever? The world would be a different place. Right? He would not have found breakthrough, but neither would so many other millions. What if William Wilberforce had just said whatever? Oh, whatever. We can't, we're not going to be able to turn around that economic system. We're still going to, you know. Imagine if I was presenting to you a, a um, political manifesto for the taking down of Tip Top. Right? There. Imagine if we could engage in possi- impossibility rather than just possibilities. Imagine if we could. Do you know, um, I love Hebrews chapter 10, 23, and um, I think Josh has got that for the big screen as well. Hebrews 10, 23, I just, I just love uh, this promise. It says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. So, so we hold tightly, we don't waver, and we're certain, I, I like this, what we're, we've got this without wavering hope. Hold tightly to hope. So we hold tightly to things we're actually uncertain of. We're certain about the uncertainties of hope rather than being certain about the difficulties of life. Sometimes we've got to let our hands go from disappointment and and, and, and smallness. We've got to let our hands go of uncertainty and get certain about the uncertainty of hope. We've got to hold tightly to hope. Do you like that picture? It's like, get a hand, get to fill your hands with steam. Get as much steam as you can hold. Right? Oh, let's hold tightly to hope. Let's hold tightly to believe. Why? Because God can be trusted to keep His promise. Not because I can see how this might work out. Not because I can imagine and conceive how God's plan is going to work. No, because we can hold tightly to hope because God can be trusted. Why don't you close your eyes and bow your heads just for a second. I really believe the Holy Spirit wants to set people free this morning. There's actually stuff that you need to be set free from. Um, 
I don't know if you've ever had an injury, like a muscular injury. I can remember one time I pulled my calf muscle. And for a couple of weeks, my calf muscle was very, very sore. And so I walked a bit funny. It wasn't hilarious, but it was just slightly odd. Right? And, but I got into a groove of walking a bit funny and then got a sore knee as well. And in the end, I, I was walking with quite a strange limp. Nothing actually hurt anymore. I was just now walking weirdly. The reality is this, right through life, we take hits that most of the time we don't really deal with. Most of the time we get disappointments or little bits of it, or we get, get a build-up of frustration and tension in life where we don't actually often get the opportunity to say, I need to let some stuff go because I'm walking weird. And some of us, we can't grasp out and get a hold of hope because we're holding on to too many disappointments or too many hurts or pains. So maybe just close your eyes and bow your heads. I always want to pray for people this morning because the Holy Spirit's setting you free now. Just like Fifi said early on, there's a, the windows of heaven open and God's grace and mercy pours out. It's His grace that enables us to become everything He's called us to be. It's His grace that sets us free. It's His mercies that renew us every morning. So this morning, just wherever you're sitting, maybe respond to God by lifting hands. Definitely open your heart. And I just want to pray for you. You don't need to identify yourself to me, but you need to identify yourself to the Holy Spirit. Just say in your heart, God, I know I'm one of those who needs to be find free from the past. I'm one of those who needs to reach out and grab a hold of new hope. Lord, Holy Spirit, we just welcome you right now to move into every heart, work into every one of our lives. Oh God, we want to be sort of people who can grab a grasp tightly onto hope. Lord God, letting go of disappointments, letting go of hurts, letting go of pains, letting go of letting go of the things we're sure of and grabbing a hold tightly to the promises that you've made, to your goodness, to your mercy, to your grace. And Lord, I speak into specific circumstances. Lord God, where people need specific hope. Lord, I pray you'd speak even right now. Holy Spirit, speak specific words of breakthrough of around healing, around miracles, around transformation. Transformation. Lord God, that we go away from church this morning knowing exactly exactly what you're saying to us. Lord God, that we wouldn't just, we wouldn't just hope, but Lord, we'd hope in your promise. Lord God, we know that you who promise are also faithful. Lord, we pray you'd speak. Lord, we think of Lord, situations where we need healing, where people need breakthrough, where with friends and with family. Lord God, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd help us to hold tightly in all of those situations. Could I invite you, wouldn't you stand to your feet? Maybe everyone across the room, wouldn't you lift your hands? One of the things that motivates me is that, that one of the things I, I pray about, that I think about, one of the things I preach towards is that the church would be mobilized. Mobilized. Now, the church is not immobilized, but there's this thing in me that just come on, we can, we can, we can move differently. Right? We could we could believe differently. We could we could imagine I think we could imagine church much much more powerful than it is. I can imagine church much more free flowing. It was so amazing. We were at Alistair and Emily's housewarming in Palmerston North last night. And Alistair invited all of his neighbors because he's Alistair. And one of the neighbors from across the road is 84 years old, one of Alistair's new friends. He built the house across the road, first house on the street. When he was 20, he shifted in with his new wife. House across the street. Now Alistair and Emily have shifted in across the road, right? 
And here's Alistair. You know, Alistair, I think Alistair's, I don't know how old he is. He must be nearly late 20s. He must be late 20s. But he looks about 17. And here's his new mate from across the road, who's just Alistair from 45, 60 years ago. And I just think, come on, what would the church like if we could flow into our neighborhoods like that? So there's a barbecue with me and Richard and people from church in Wellington. There are people from the church in Palmerston North. Then the, the people from that over the fence there and the people from over the road. And there was no barriers between churchy people and the neighbors. And Alistair was just working it. Just saying, come on, God, move amongst these people. Connect people to your promise. I just think, what would it look like in our workplaces if, if the kingdom of God would be mobilized? If God would work in those places, amen? But it begins with us saying, come on, God, what if? What if we could be real, real followers of Jesus 24-7 and see God work in our world? Amen? Why don't you lift your hands? I want to pray one more time before we close our service with a song of praise. Lord, I just pray right now for Equipus Church Wellington, for everybody here in the room, for the people who are away for the long weekend. Lord, are we praying? Lord, I pray for this group of people. Lord God, that we'd be the sort of people who can begin to imagine the kingdom of heaven established on earth as it is in heaven. Lord God, that we'd also be able to imagine a role that we could play, a place where we could serve, a flow that we could get into. Lord God, where we We'd see you work in our neighborhoods. We'd see you work amongst our family. Lord, we'd see you work amongst friends and workmates and colleagues. Lord, we'd see the transformation of neighborhoods, the transformation of industries, the transformation of high schools, the transformation of university campuses. Come on, let's lift our voices. Lord God, we ask you to move. Lord, we ask you to move. Lord, we ask you to pour your spirit out.